the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 15. Discovering Alien Life in the Universe. Talking with Professor Niku Madhusudan. Our guest today is Dr. Niku Madhusudan, who teaches at Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. He joins us from his office in Cambridge, England. Hello, Madhu, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jim. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Before joining the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge, you graduated from the Indian Institute of Technology, Varanasi, and received your master's degree and PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Tell us about your research work at Cambridge. At Cambridge, I lead a research group on exoplanetary atmospheres. Uh, what our main activity is to look at planets outside the solar system. These are exoplanets and look at their atmospheres and try to see if we can understand their atmospheric compositions. And this involves both doing the actual observations with uh, state-of-the-art telescopes, both uh, in space and on ground, and using several atmospheric modeling and retrieval techniques, these are inverse techniques, to back out the chemical information in these planets that are you know, tens to hundreds of light years away just from their uh, spectroscopic observations. Very impressive. Just last month, you and your team made a groundbreaking discovery in the atmosphere of an exoplanet named K218b. And that discovery was possible hints of a gas which we find here on Earth and which is on Earth is produced by simple organisms. Will history look back on that discovery as the first contact moment with life beyond our solar system? Indeed, when history will look back upon this moment, it will think of this moment as a big, big transformation in our ability to understand planetary atmospheric compositions. But I want to take one step back and talk about the bigger picture here. What we have discovered most robustly, so this is, as you said, K218b, a planet that is two and a half times Earth size. So it's, it's bigger, significantly bigger than Earth and about nine times Earth mass. So if you ask someone about four years ago, can such a planet be actually habitable? Now, you also have to understand that this planet actually sits in the habitable zone of its host star in the sense that it receives almost the same amount of radiation from its star as the Earth receives from the sun. So if you put an Earth-like planet around such a star at that same location, it could potentially be habitable, right? So the planet receives enough energy, but then the size of the planet and the mass is much bigger than Earth. So if you ask someone about four years ago, can such a planet be habitable? The unequivocal answer would be that no. And that's because there was a thought uh, in the field, and it's, it's, a st it's still a possible scenario, that the planet's atmosphere would be mostly hydrogen and too thick to allow for any habitable conditions at the bottom of the atmosphere. In other words, the pressure and temperature at the bottom of such an atmosphere would be too high mm -hmm. to sustain any kind of life as we know of on Earth. So that, that, is, that is the point where we start. Now, what we have dissected in this atmosphere, in this latest result, 
a robust evidence for uh, carbon-based molecules, firstly, lots of methane and carbon dioxide. Those molecules are molecules that we have detected very, very robustly. Now, that in itself is a huge breakthrough in the field because mm-hmm. for more than a decade, we have been trying to detect methane in just cold giant planets, not even smaller and habitable zone planets, just any cold planets. We have been trying to detect methane around other stars, and we have not been able to until this point. And then, cut to the present time, we have JWST, and then the first time we look at this relatively small, compared to giant planets, relatively small planet in the sitting in the habitable zone, and we detect methane at five sigma significance in first try. Now, five sigma, from a scientific point of view, is is pretty robust. Most people will tell you that. We also detect carbon dioxide pretty robustly. That's three sigma, which is still like over 99% confidence. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are the kinds of things that I would think history would look back and say, well, we have actually been able to do that on a habitable zone planet. So that's the major breakthrough. Can I interject there? I yeah. just want our yeah. listeners to recognize that this planet that you're talking about, it's called K2-18b. It's 120 light years, 120 light years away from Earth. This gigantic planet circles a red dwarf star, and you used the James Webb Space Telescope, right, to focus on this exoplanet. Tell us about your other groundbreaking discovery, which is atmospheric retrieval, because Using that telescope, you are able to focus on K2-18b, 120 light years away from Earth, and by observing the light emitted from that planet, you are able to draw these conclusions about the atmosphere of this planet 120 light years from Earth. And you, in fact, are the discoverer of this phenomenon called atmospheric retrieval. Tell us about atmospheric retrieval because that's a that's a huge discovery in and of itself. Yes. So so that is what we would call as a, a technique discovery. So that was uh, when I was a PhD student actually. This was uh, about 14 years ago when the first atmospheric observations, very low resolution observations were coming from at that time the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope. Very low resolution observations. And we were trying to, in the, in the field, people were trying to understand how can we use these observations to extract the chemical information about the planet's atmosphere. And that is where, that was part of my uh, research work uh, back as a PhD scholar at, at MIT. And um, we invented this technique called atmospheric retrieval, which is effectively a statistical approach to looking at a spectrum and fitting a lots of atmospheric models uh, to these uh, to these observations and basically it's a, a parametric atmospheric model where you extract the parameters which are the atmospheric compositions and the temperature structure and so on of the atmosphere by looking at the spectroscopic observations so the spectra the spectral lines in the in the spectrum that you're seeing of the planet tell you fingerprints of the molecules that are present in the mm-hmm. planet's atmosphere by exploring a large range of uh, parameters of different molecules and different combinations of temperature structures, we're able to get a probabilistic estimate, a statistical estimate for 
how good a model fit is to the data that we are seeing. So that's what. That's such an impressive, groundbreaking discovery uh, to me as a layman. When I think that this planet, this exoplanet, which is 120 light years distant from here, the technique that you've developed will enable us to be able to determine whether some of these exoplanets outside of our own solar system, whether they're habitable, whether they have oceans, whether they have land, whether they're in the Goldilocks zone, etc. Most importantly, by determining if their atmosphere has the components that would sustain life, and you can do it all here from Earth— we don't have to right. send we don't have to send a space exploration that would take years decades hundreds of years to reach this exoplanet you can do it all here from earth in a matter of hours by using the james webb telescope tell us about the james webb telescope and that how that telescope which is relatively new how that has revolutionized in particular your search for life beyond our solar system when we first developed atmospheric retrieval, as I said, it was for previous generation of uh, space telescopes, uh, Switzer Space Telescope, uh, Hubble, and so on. And the constraints we were getting, the uh, estimates we were getting for atmospheric compositions were for large giant planets, uh, giant hot and giant exoplanets. These are Jovian-type sizes. Uh, but what James Webb has done, the James Webb Space Telescope has done, is that it has brought as much closer to actually detect chemical signatures in much smaller planets. And K218b is the best example of that. Now, this would have been unthinkable to detect even the broader molecules like methane and carbon dioxide. It would have been unthinkable with any other facility. Mm-hmm. And there's currently no other facility that can do it in space or on ground at that level of robustness. Uh, so that that has been a game changer for us. This is a huge telescope, the largest that humanity has ever built and uh, is in space. Now, what we are using this to is to get these major molecular compositions of the atmospheres. So for example, for K218b, we have been able to detect, as I said, methane and carbon dioxide uh, very robustly, but what is also important that we did not detect ammonia in the atmosphere. Now, there's a lot of theory that went into it over the last couple of years, which basically says that If you have a a planet with an ocean underneath it, one of the signatures of that, the atmospheric signatures of that is that you would detect basically the composition that we are detecting, which is you would detect methane and CO2, but you wouldn't detect ammonia. So that is what led us to uh, infer that what we are seeing based on this chemical composition estimates that we're getting is the possibility of an ocean underneath a thin hydrogen-rich atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that is what led us to confirm. I mean, we need more observations to further uh, confirm all of these things. But this is what is the characteristic of what we called as a Haitian world. Haitian stands for hydrogen and ocean. So a planet with a hydrogen-rich atmosphere, but a habitable ocean underneath is, is what a Haitian world is. And JWST will allow us to detect such atmospheric features of a number of these Haitian worlds, first to establish the presence of an ocean on such uh, on such worlds, based on what I just mentioned, the chemical patterns, but also possibly detect signatures of life, biosignatures, on such planets. And that's where this molecule DMS becomes important as you open this conversation with. What does DMS stand for? 
Yeah, DMS stands for dimethyl sulfide. This is a gas that is uniquely linked to life uh, here on Earth. It's only produced by living matter in, in various circumstances. But uh, on Earth, there is no other way to produce it other than some life-based channel. Now, we don't know if this molecule is also just as robust an indicator of life in other worlds, but even the ability to detect any hint of it mm-hmm. right now with James Webb Space Telescope. And here we are talking about in 2023, we are already saying that there are possible hints of the molecule in a habitable zone exoplanet. And, and that itself is huge, even though we need more observations to confirm it and tomorrow it may go away with more observations. But even the ability to be able to say this, to be able to possibly detect it with James Webb Space Telescope currently, that is a historic moment. And as, as you pointed out at the beginning, if this turns out to be true, history will indeed look back at this moment and say that's when we first realized as, as a species that actually we can detect these biomarkers in this new type of habitable environments that uh, that we don't encounter here uh, on Earth. I sense the enthusiasm of discovery in your description. Let's come back to the exoplanet K2-18b, which is the one that you're studying. You described it as a, as a, as a Hyshen. And again, Hyshen is a portmanteau word combining hydrogen and ocean, and that's spelled H-Y-C-E-A-N. Now, you also discovered that there are perhaps 10 or 12 other similar Hyshen exoplanets out there, which eventually you'll move on to analyzing also. Is that right? Yes. And now tell us again, the James Webb Telescope has been such a breakthrough, such a breakthrough of discovery for the work that you've done in trying to identify and discover alien life in the universe. What is the useful life of this, of the Webb Telescope? And are we just at the early stages of deploying that telescope and making the groundbreaking discoveries that you've made? How long is its useful life? And will we see even greater, more earth-shattering, no pun intended, discoveries coming from the James Webb Telescope? We are very, very early in the operations of James Webb, actually, JWST. The observations that we reported came literally in the first year of JWST's operations. So, so that's the mind-boggling bit there. Mm-hmm. Is that literally in the first year of James Webb observations, and we have, as you said, already a dozen planets one can look at, and the life of JWST will be anywhere between 10 to 20 years by current estimates. So we have a long way to go and a lot of potential. Now, it all comes down to what we as a scientific community will prioritize to use the telescope for, because the time allocation on this telescope happens by community consensus, uh, selection procedures, and so on. But there are there is good reason to believe that we will, as a, as a field, as a community, uh, prioritize looking at these smaller planets, temperate planets, like, like these Haitian worlds, which actually, based on theoretical calculations, are saying that we ought to be able to detect chemical signatures of various species, uh, chemical species in their atmospheres, and the K218B is demonstrating that. And if we go that route, if we do our due diligence and put a lot of time on it and do all the detailed theory and observational work required, then you know, I would be surprised if there are no bigger breakthroughs waiting for us over JWST's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now tell us, NASA has plans 
in the mid-2030s to launch another groundbreaking satellite telescope, I should say, the Habitable Worlds Observatory in the 2030s. And also the European Space Agency is looking to build a a huge observatory in Chile. Could you tell us about both the the Habitable Worlds Observatory coming in the mid-2030s and the observatory in Chile that the ESA is planning? Both the, the, all the large facilities, be it from space or, uh, or on Earth, one of the major drivers of those facilities has been to detect atmospheric signatures of rocky planets around nearby stars, and some of them could be sun-like stars. Uh, because even with JWST as great as it is, it is very hard to actually, almost impossible to detect an Earth-like planet, the atmosphere of an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star. Mm-hmm. The contrast of that is uh, the the planet star uh, radius contrast or the flux contrast is too small for even JWST to to do that to to look at their atmospheres. So you need even bigger facilities, and that's what the the future facilities are planning to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those will prioritize looking at rocky planets. Mm-hmm. What JWST's strength is that we can already look at planets that are slightly bigger than Earth orbiting stars that are smaller than the sun. So the planet star size contrast is favorable for JWSTs to look at. But the future facilities will just do that for bigger stars and smaller planets. Let's come back to K2-18b, the Haitian. You've told us that it's twice the size of the Earth, number one. Give us more description about it. It's primarily an ocean. It doesn't have any land. How deep is that ocean? Of course, oceans here on Earth, Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, are maybe a couple of kilometers deep. Tell us about the the depth and the expanse of this ocean on K2-18b. So I would like to preface this by uh, saying that uh, we have two parts to the story, right? So we have observations and we have the theoretical interpretations of those observations. Mm-hmm. So both have to go hand in hand, and K218b is a testament of that, it is, is a great success story. So on the ob- from the observational side, we detect this carbon-based molecules. We see possible hints of DMS, but that uh, remains to be confirmed by future observations. It may or may not be there. But then one can do these internal structure models to see how deep can these oceans be and so on and what the conditions on such planets could be, like like you were asking. And for K218b, we have done those calculations uh, recently, and the oceans could be uh, hundreds of kilometers deep. So those would be much deeper oceans than what we see on Earth. So that raises other questions on, well, if you don't have a land mass, how do you maintain the nutrient cycles that we are familiar uh, with Earth, which deliver the bioessential chemicals to the ocean. So how are you going to maintain those things for life to uh, survive with? And those calculations have also been done, and we have showed that you can actually get the bioessential nutrients just from uh, external delivery through through meteorites and so on, or uh, you know, asteroid impacts and so on in the history, formation and evolutionary history of the planet. So these are very different worlds. These are mostly like almost entirely ocean-covered worlds with very deep oceans with no access to the surface underneath, to the rocky surface underneath. And so deep that likely the bottom of that ocean floor is also a high-pressure ice. So you'll never encounter rock on this planet until unless you peer through the you pierce through the ice uh, at the bottom. So that that's the kind of planet we're talking about. 
and the atmosphere uh, would be most would be hydrogen rich it's it won't be nitrogen rich or oxygen rich like we have on earth it'll be a hydrogen rich atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, so the kinds of envir these are the kinds of environments that are very foreign from our solar system experience and we don't know what kind of life could thrive there we do know that it, there are possible ways to deliver the bioessential nutrients to start life but it is possible that most of that life would still be a rudimentary very primordial and microbial life and not advanced life as as we uh, as we see on earth mm-hmm. when will you next be able to use the james webb telescope for your second look or your next look at k2-18b yeah so for k2-18b we have another observation coming up in less than 6 months next uh, so next year around next april but there are also other groups which will be uh, looking at it there's at least one other group uh, which will also look at the planet next year uh, but it's not just k2 it will be there are a number of planets that fall in a similar category that several groups uh, around the world will be looking at over the next uh, year or two mm-hmm. and then there will be more there could be more observations in the future but currently approved observations there are already approved observations for several such planets including k2 in order to get in that queue yeah what is the process in order to get in that queue for james for the james webb telescope you asked this question at a very interesting time actually because the the deadline for the cycle 3 applications which is the third year of jwst observations was last night <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is that every year there is an application process uh, where the astronomical community Uh, applies for uh, puts in proposals uh, applying for time on JWST and these proposals get selected by a committee that is hosted by the Space Science Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore who, who run uh, the web telescope and that selection process is an annual uh, annual event and then at the end of that process they release the successful programs and then those programs will be implemented for that year if you want to get into the queue you just need to apply I anyone see. can apply. And so anyone can apply. This is open universe this is open throughout the world and any country in the world can apply for time to use yeah. the JWS telescope. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to say I'm, I'm really proud of of our astronomical international astronomical community and especially NASA ESA CSA communities who uh, who lead who led the development of the James Webb Space Telescope. and the policy is literally open to everyone in the world and the selection procedures are also quite robust they're dual anonymous in the sense that uh, they try to minimize any biases with, uh, based on your background the only thing that's looked at is the merit of your proposal mm-hmm. uh, so uh, so i i think the community has done a very good job in maintaining the rigor the, uh, of the scientific process over the years and i hope that continues and that web delivers Uh, the great science it is uh, designed to deliver in the remaining few minutes of our podcast madhu number 1 again please tell us about your discovery of atmospheric retrieval and where our listeners might be able to learn more about that number 1 and number 2 give us a sense of where we're headed over the next few years because as you said this is only the first year of operation of the james webb telescope and so In conclusion, what kind of discoveries might we be looking forward to over the next 3, 5, 10 years coming through the James Webb telescope? 
So atmospheric retrieval, my career basically started with uh, with the development of uh, this technique called atmospheric retrieval, where we look at a spectrum of an exoplanet and we fit it with parametric models and we are able to extract atmospheric information, their compositions, temperature structures, and so on from the atmospheric spectra of this planet, even though these planets are hundred, can be hundreds of light years away. And where we are headed uh, with JWST is currently using these atmospheric retrieval techniques and spectroscopic observations of these planets that we can make with JWST, we are already able to detect key molecules like methane and carbon dioxide and water vapor and so on in exoplanets. Especially in our result, we have found methane and CO2 in this small habitable zone planet, uh, uh, roughly two and a half times the size of the Earth. That is a breakthrough in the sense that it tells us what is possible, what the capabilities are, and over the next several years, I would say three to five years, we would be discovering similar uh, patterns on a number of sub-Neptunes, so like the, these uh, small planets. We could be detecting the same molecules that we detected here, or we could be detecting other molecules. And over a 10-year time frame, again, it is always very difficult to predict what's coming at uh, the very cutting edge of a field because mm-hmm. it's so non-linear. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if we actually detected molecules that we think of as biomarkers on Earth, like DMS or other molecules, even more robustly than what we have already done with a significant investment of JWST time. So I would think over this decade, those will be where our biggest breakthroughs will come, is detecting new molecules that have never been detected in exoplanets before, even though we know of them on Earth. And that will be like pushing this envelope much further and, and yeah, maybe detect a biomarker in a Haitian world over this uh, decade would be a major accomplishment, mm-hmm. which I see is within the realm of possibility. I, I, I wouldn't discount that. What an exciting time to be alive, and what an exciting time for you and your team to be an astronomer. Absolutely. We are, we are always thrilled, even just thinking about these things on a theoretical yes. side, but also actually making discoveries. Is, uh, we feel really fortunate to be at this position. And Madhu, how can our listeners follow your work? Just Google for me, look at me, look at my uh, homepage. We, we give links to our uh, papers and at least say what papers are coming out. Yeah, and we have from time and whenever we have big news like this, uh, there are press releases obviously that that, that one puts out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just uh, looking at our papers that are coming out in various journals uh, and just googling. Do you have an X handle? Yeah, XO Madhu. So I do have an X handle. I'm not a very frequent user of it, but sometimes yes. So that's X O M A D H U. Yes. Very good. Well, Madhu, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was a very enlightening discussion. To be on the cutting edge of discovery like this, we'll have you back when, as and when the DMS, your discovery of uh, the hint, the first hints of DMS on K2-18b, as those hints come more concretized, we'd love to have you back to tell us about the continuing work on the DMS discovery on on this exoplanet. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, no, it's great to be be on the show, and thanks for uh, thanks for doing this and all the great questions. And I would love to chat with you again. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number four hundred and sixty-two. The San Francisco Experience podcast is featured on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, eighteen platforms in total, with a listener base in sixty countries. 
Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.